The Interchange is brought to you by AES Energy Storage, a pioneering and world-leading storage developer and now energy storage solution provider. We are entering a new era, the electrification of everything, and the grid needs to catch up. That means making it into a more distributed, flexible, and cleaner network. AES Energy Storage is helping unlock the true power of the electricity system with Advanceon. Advanceon is a battery-based energy storage platform that helps utilities modernize their power systems rapidly and at a much lower cost than traditional infrastructure. AES brings 30 years of power sector experience to the storage industry, delivering the most reliable, safest, and best-performing storage solutions. Advanceon can handle any application, and it's always instantly available, without the need to burn fuel or invest in expensive peaking generation or other infrastructure to meet flexibility or reliability needs. It's time to unlock the full potential of the electric power system. That means building a new energy network, transforming the grid with energy storage, accelerating renewables, and electrifying everything. That is the vision and mission of AES Energy Storage. Learn more about AES's offerings by visiting aesenergystorage.com interchange. That's aesenergystorage.com slash interchange. This is The Interchange, a weekly conversation on the global energy transformation from Green Tech Media. I'm Stephen Lacey, the editor-in-chief of Green Tech Media, here with Shale Khan, who's our senior vice president. Hello, Shale. Hey, Stephen. This is the last time I'm going to get to sit here face-to-face in the Boston office with you and podcast because you are moving over to the West Coast. It's true. As of next week, I will be based out of GTM's San Francisco office. So any listeners in the Bay Area, feel free to reach out. All right, we're going to miss you, but the conversations continue. And today we're talking about something that you have been following very closely that I am trying to wrap my head around. And I know that a lot of people in the industry in solar are trying to wrap their heads around as well. This is Suniva's petition to the International Trade Commission to put tariffs and minimum prices on solar cells and modules coming into the U.S. And this is not solar equipment coming in from Asia, mind you. This is solar equipment coming in from everywhere. So this could have a very dramatic pricing impact on the solar industry. We mentioned the uh, Suniva petition when it was first proposed, when Suniva filed for bankruptcy, but the ITC has officially taken up the case, and we are going to talk about what happens next, what could happen to pricing in the U.S., and all the legal maneuvering around this uh, fairly complicated case. So, Shale, let's take a step back and remind everyone exactly what happened and what a Section 201 petition is. Right. Okay, so let's go back a few years to start, right? So in like 2007 through 2011, uh, China started growing its solar manufacturing. And before that, most of the solar panels that were installed, much smaller number than we see installed today, most of those were manufactured in either Japan or Germany. And the U.S. was starting to come up as a manufacturing location, largely thanks to an influx of new thin film solar manufacturers. So this was in the days before companies like Solyndra failed. It looked like the U.S. was going to be home to a lot of solar manufacturing and in part 
because of thin film. None of that really played out. And so what ended up happening instead was that most of the solar panels that we were installing in the US increasingly were shipped to the US from largely China and Taiwan. So fast forward to 2011, Solar World, which is a Germany-based solar manufacturer with a big operation, manufacturing operation in Oregon, filed an anti-dumping countervailing duty petition. So this is one type of trade remedy petition that they filed to the Department of Commerce in 2011, asking for import tariffs on Chinese cells and modules imported into the US, so specific to China. That ended up succeeding, so they got import tariffs imposed from China. Then they expanded it a couple of years later because a lot of manufacturers were um, shipping cells from Taiwan to be assembled in China. That was a, a loophole of sorts. So it expanded the scope in 2013. And as a result, we have tariffs today on both China and Taiwan. Now, the result of that was not a big boom in US solar manufacturing. Largely what happened instead is that we ended up uh, shipping a lot of solar panels into the U.S. from other parts of Asia, Southeast Asia, from Mexico, from even Canada, from a bunch of other locations. So as a result, in 2016, about 13% of all the solar panels that were installed in the U.S. were actually manufactured in the U.S. The other 87% came from somewhere else in the world. And so we're manufacturing a couple gigawatts? That's that's what the capacity is in the U.S. right now? Yeah, exactly. So last year, the, the U.S. installed about 14.5 gigawatts of solar and somewhere around 2 gigawatts of manufacturing. So we're still importing a lot. Now, Ceneva was one of the few remaining uh, module manufacturers in the U.S., based in Georgia, and they filed for bankruptcy last month. And as part of their bankruptcy filing, their creditor, who is seeing them through uh, bankruptcy called SQN, said that they intended as part of the bankruptcy financing to file a Section 201 petition. Section 201 petition is a different kind of trade petition from the anti-dumping one that was filed in 2011, and it's, it's rarely invoked. This is the first time that there has been a Section 201 investigation since 2002. The last one was in the steel industry in 2002. And it's different for in a bunch of ways that we'll talk about. But importantly, in contrast to the anti-dumping version, which we've already seen, which is generally focused at a specific country or a small number of countries, the potential results of a Section 201 petition can be much broader. So as you mentioned, we don't know what will happen yet, but it's possible that whatever remedies come out of this, they could apply to imports from everywhere. So it could be applied universally across the board, which would obviously have a much bigger impact on the market. So Cineva filed the petition, and the more recent news was that the International Trade Commission decided to take up the petition. They officially started the investigation. That wasn't a guarantee that they were going to do that because they had to look at whether Cineva had standing, basically represented enough of the U.S. industry to have standing to represent that industry. The ITC decided that Cineva did, and sort of simultaneously with that, Solar World, who had been the initiator of the other trade petition, joined on to this one. So now it's both as co-petitioners, Solar World and Cineva, which means they definitely have standing, and so the case is moving forward. So now we're off to the races. I'm particularly intrigued by this SQN portion of the story, um, which has just gotten bizarre in the last couple of weeks. Bloomberg reported recently that uh, SQN had sent a letter to 
the Chinese Chamber of Commerce, basically saying, we'll drop this case if you or a you know, a Chinese company that you represent buys us out. Yeah. So SQN, SQN is the, the, you know, effectively owns all the Cineva assets now through bankruptcy and basically said, look, if you buy these assets off our hands, then there, then, you know, there's no reason for Cineva to pursue this case anymore. So it's going to be a $55 million sort of way to get around having the case filed in the first place. Way to get around is one way to put it. Extortion is another way to put it. Yeah. I mean, if that's really true and SQN just wants its $55 million back and is willing to totally upend the U.S. solar industry as as a whole in order to get its payment back, and that's what this is really all about, then that's totally crazy. I will say that day has probably passed because, first of all, nobody bought Cineva back when SQN or Cineva's assets back when SQN sent that letter. So then Cineva went and filed the petition. But then now that Solar World has also joined on, Solar World, of course, also going through bankruptcy in its insolvency in its parent company in Germany, but it's the U.S. part of Solar World that filed on to this petition. Now that Solar World's involved as well, you can't really just buy Cineva's assets and get out of it because you've still got Solar World in the petition. So one way or another, this is moving forward now. And it's obviously not just Cineva that has suffered. As you said, Solar World has joined the petition because it filed for insolvency. And uh, Mission Solar, which is an Austin, Texas-based manufacturer, is down to a skeleton crew, I'm told. They've had a number of major layoffs. Um, the, you know, this, this is bad for pretty much anybody operating in the U.S. right now. The environment is bad. So there is a, a case to be made if you're one of these companies that we need to do something bigger and bolder, right? Like you could make the case that this isn't just about Suniva holding the industry hostage, that this truly is about an existential threat to U.S. manufacturing because it's not just one company that's been brought down. It's many different companies. Yeah, but the counterpoint to that is every solar manufacturer globally is hurting right now. We are in a period of oversupply. Prices have crashed. As a result, the margins for every single solar manufacturer, be they America-based or China-based, are suffering. And some companies are going to survive through that and come out the other end when we sort of end this oversupply cycle and some are not. And a lot of the U.S.-based companies um, had less ability to weather that storm. They can't price as aggressively. They don't have as big a balance sheet for whatever reason. So either you could say, well, that means the U.S. needs to do something about domestic solar manufacturing. And I'm not opposed to that idea, whether the answer is import tariffs or not is another matter. Or you could say, look, they just couldn't compete. This is an open global market and you know they're not competitive, so they can't last through a downturn cycle. Couldn't compete even with tariffs in place. Even with sort of limited tariffs on China and Taiwan. What the heck is going to happen now? I mean, this thing is filed. The, the government has said we're, they're going to go ahead with it. We have, I think, 150 days, right? Because it's usually a 120-day process, but they've given themselves an extra 30 days. Well, the process is a little bit longer than that, ultimately. So here's how the process goes. I mean, first, I guess, let me just say this. I think there's going to be a, a period during which things are going to get a little bit quiet. And it would be a mistake to think that because things get a little bit quiet, you're not hearing this in the news all the time, that this isn't still a huge deal for solar in the U.S. This is the most important thing solar is facing in the U.S. right now, and anyone who's involved in this market should be paying incredibly deep attention to it and getting involved in any way that they can. 
Yeah, so at our Solar Summit, when you were on stage with John, and then I immediately went up with SIA CEO Abby Hopper, we kind of had a one-two punch explaining the importance of this case. And there were a lot of people in the room who had not been paying attention who came up to me afterward, and they were completely flabbergasted that, like, that this had such broad implications for the industry. And so, you know, for us, we've been kind of paying attention to this from the beginning, and it's we kind of understand that it's a big deal. And I was taken aback by how many people just had no idea that this was going. It's also really, it gets kind of wonky when you get into it. You know, you're hearing about the section 201 trade petition at the international trade commission and remedies and all this kind of stuff. And it's easy to get lost in the noise. So I just wanted to start with like, this is now because it is underway, this is happening and it is incredibly important. So let's talk through what the process is going to look like. And then and then we should talk about what might happen as a result and what that might mean for the market, which will speak to why it is sort of important. So here's the process. International Trade Commission already initiated. They uh, basically said they called this an extraordinarily complicated case. And then because of that, they gave themselves a little bit of extra time to get to the first next milestone, which is they have to determine whether there has been serious injury, that's the technical definition in quotation marks, serious injury to domestic manufacturing, and that the proximate, the primary cause of that injury was increasing volume of imports. So that's what they have to determine. And they've got until September 22nd to make that determination. So that's a thumbs up or thumbs down. It's binary. Um, if they say thumbs down, the domestic industry has not suffered that much or it has suffered, but there's been another reason for it, then the case ends right there. If they give a thumbs up, then the next step is they have to do a remedy recommendation. So this is when the ITC will say, okay, we there has been injury to the domestic industry. Let's figure out what to do about it. So what Seneva is requesting, which we can talk about in detail, is just a request. The ITC can take that request, they can change it, they can introduce a completely different set of remedies. So those can be anything from import tariffs to minimum import prices to volume quotas. They have pretty wide leeway in making a recommendation. So assuming that they do find injury by September 22nd, they then have until November 13th to make their remedy recommendation. Now, this is where this process is significantly different from the process in the previous case. In the previous case, it was sort of a quasi-judicial process. It exists largely outside of the political atmosphere. This one is not like that. Once they make a remedy recommendation, it goes directly to the desk of the president. And the president has full authority to do pretty much whatever he wants. He can accept the recommendation, reject the recommendation, change the recommendation. So it is, again, just a recommendation that the president can then do almost anything with. He would involve the U.S. trade representative and other members of his cabinet. But at the end of the day, President Trump, presuming he is still the president at that point, would make whatever decision would have to get made if it gets to his desk. So that's where the biggest uncertainty lies, because obviously in this administration, we just don't have a great sense of what he would do. We'd like to take a moment to extend a big thank you to our sponsor, AES Energy Storage. AES Energy Storage is a world-leading provider of grid-scale battery storage projects. AES Corporation owns $36 billion in energy assets and serves electricity to over 9 million people worldwide. Ten years ago, AES set up its battery business. 
Since then, the cost of installing grid-scale batteries has dropped nearly 90%, thanks to more efficient installation techniques, lower-cost hardware, and better lithium-ion batteries. This same trend took hold in the computer industry, where rapidly declining data storage costs revolutionized our digital networks. Lithium-ion batteries are now bringing data networks' resiliency and responsiveness to the electricity network by enabling multiple hours of storage. The grid is changing. Fast. And AES Energy Storage is helping utilities harness the power of battery-based energy storage to make the electric power system cleaner, more flexible, and more reliable. Visit aesenergystorage.com slash interchange to learn more. That's aesenergystorage.com slash interchange. So we do have some sense, and and we can only base our uh, estimation of what he'll do based on his campaign rhetoric. And he said during his campaign that he was going to declare China a currency manipulator. He ended up walking back on that. He uh, really stoked a lot of anger and fear about China. And since his administration started, I think he's toned that back a little bit. With that said, he has continued to push for domestic wins to keep industries and companies operating in the United States. Whether it's good economic policy or not, or good for a broader industry or not, it is very important for him to have individual wins that he can then talk about and spin a certain narrative around. And so this presumably is one of them. If he can say, I am helping these three or four companies keep hundreds of jobs in the U.S., that's a good story for him to tell whether or not it's a bad story for the industry broadly. Right. So I think that I've been thinking a lot about this, and we're getting ahead of ourselves, right? It may never get to his desk, and those who are opposing the petition are going to do everything that they can between now and then to make sure it never does. But if it does, I think the surface-level view of what he would be likely to do is similar to what you're saying, which is sort of, okay, look, he's you know ran on a, a protectionist trade platform during the campaign. Um, his U.S. trade rep- incoming U.S. trade representative, I believe, actually specifically mentioned Section 201 as a tool in the toolbox to support domestic industry, which was surprising because nobody, you know, usually uses Section 201. So they were obviously thinking about it already. You could imagine this coming to the president's desk, him looking at it and saying, "Oh, this is great. I can protect a domestic industry. I don't really care if it hurts." all these other jobs, right? The case against this from an economic policy perspective is there are a couple of thousand domestic solar manufacturing jobs and there are like 250,000, you know, installer downstream jobs in the U.S. And those are the ones that would suffer if prices increase. He may not care about that, right? He hasn't shown a lot of interest in in the U.S. solar industry. So I think the high-level view suggests that he would do something pretty stringent, Um There is a slightly deeper view that, as you sort of mentioned, in the cases when he's actually had to start to make policy or change his rhetoric a little bit with regard to China in particular, but also other countries since being elected, he's shown a little bit of sway on some of these issues. And so it could get to his desk and then other political winds could be blowing in some direction. And so you just don't know what would happen. But of course, uncertainty is a market killer. Right, it's always been true. Political uncertainty is always one of the worst things for a market. So just not knowing what he would do is bad enough, at least in the near term. Yeah, I'm particularly interested in how this plays out in a geopolitical sense because 
Right now, everyone's focused on whether or not the president's going to stay in a global climate deal. And he has been pressured on his first international trip by um, officials from almost every country that he visits. And the Pope. to And including the Pope to stay in the, the climate deal. And people within his administration have tried to convince him to stay in as well and just say, you know, you can dial back your commitments, but don't rip up the treaty because it would be a diplomatic nightmare. We're far enough out from any decision being made here, but one could assume that because solar is so important for renewable energy generally is so important for diplomatic relations as a subset of issues underneath the global climate deal that this could this could become elevated, like, you know, a month out or if the ITC makes recommendations that all of a sudden the president starts hearing from global leaders who are worried about this type of trade policy. Right. Who knows? I mean, one of the big questions for me is like, obviously we're going to be talking about this on an energy podcast all the time, but is there a point where this hits the mainstream news? Like, does this become one of the early tests of trade policy in the Trump administration? I don't know, but it could, right? I mean, this is the first section 201 petition filed in 15 years that hasn't really hit the general consciousness yet. And maybe it won't until it gets to the president's desk. But if it does get there, then does this become a bigger geopolitical issue? Or is it still sort of wonky trade stuff that that people don't really care about? But again, we're getting ahead of ourselves, right? Maybe it doesn't get to that point. That's that's very true. We've got a long way here. But I think it's important to walk through the worst case scenario. Well, let's talk about even not the worst case scenario, but like the Ceneva proposed scenario. So what Ceneva is actually asking for, again, this is their request and the ITC can decide something entirely different. But all we have to to go on at this point is what Cineva has requested. Interestingly, Solar World is going to make its own set of requests at some point, and so they may differ from Cineva's. We'll have to find out. But what Cineva asked for was a few things. They asked for a 40 cent per watt tariff on cells. They asked for a 78 cent per watt minimum import price on modules. And then they basically ask it, asked for pretty much all the money from that tariff that gets collected to go into a, a pool that will support domestic manufacturing. So that gets less of the attention that last bit because it's just a pool of money that would go to help companies like Cineva and Solar World and potentially others. That pool of money might be a great idea, but it would be coming from this tariff. Now, first thing that people are generally confused about and often misinterpreting is how these two things work with each other. So we have a 40 cent tariff on cells and a 78 cent minimum price on modules. Just by way of comparison, like current pricing in the U.S. is probably in the high 30s, 35 to 40 cents a watt, right? So most people have just assumed that the minimum price, the 78 cents, would be the price you'd end up at. It's possible, one interpretation of this is that that's, that's possible. So a Chinese manufacturer ships a module into the U.S. at 38 cents a watt, pays a 40 cent tariff, that brings it up to the 78 cent minimum, and that ends up being pricing for imports in the U.S. Um, that in and of itself would almost double or potentially more than double module pricing in the U.S. So that would bring you back to module price levels that we haven't seen since about 2012. Already a big deal in terms of the economics of solar in the U.S. But there is a second interpretation, which is that these two things would have to get stacked. You would have to import the module at 78 cents a watt and then pay the tariff which would make the actual minimum price $1.18 per watt, which is pricing that we haven't seen since like 2011 and is 
you know, incredibly high relative to any normal standard today. I mean, module prices haven't been over a dollar a watt in since the market was less than a tenth the size that it is today. The problem is we don't actually know which of these two interpretations it is. There's been very little clarity from Cineva. Cineva, their attorneys haven't made this clear. And I've heard different interpretations from trade attorneys that I've spoken to. So even that alone is super complicated. One way or another, though, if whether it's 78 cents a watt or $1.18 a watt, if that were imposed, would drive prices for solar up, at least from imports, uh, significantly. Now, if you want to add one more layer of complexity to this, not every module is imported, right? So for domestic manufacturers, they could continue to sell at whatever price they they want to. And this tariff would only apply to crystalline silicon, which exempts thin film. So for the most part, First Solar. First Solar can continue to import cells from Malaysia, where it has a lot of its manufacturing, um, or even modules from Malaysia, but they could also assemble them in their Perrysburg, Ohio facility, and they wouldn't be subject to any of these import tariffs. So the single biggest winner in all of this would certainly be First Solar. So you'd still have some product in the U.S. that would have a lower price, but not nearly enough based on the volume that's out there to meet demand in the U.S., which means overall pricing would increase. And then you've got another complication, which is the solar world problem. Solar world imports cells and assembles modules as well. And you could conceivably put it slap a tariff on those crystalline silicon cells. And that's one of the reasons why solar world was hesitant to sign on to this petition in the first place, as I understand it. I believe that's right. So solar world has both cell and module manufacturing in Oregon, but they have more module manufacturing than cell. So they make some of their own cells, but they also import some of their own cells. Uh, those cells that they import would be subject to whatever tariff is applied if if there is a tariff imposed. Uh, now they, you know, in a situation where you end up with all these tariffs and minimum prices and stuff, what they could do is just ramp up their cell manufacturing facility in Oregon, which I think would be what they would end up doing if they actually win this case. In the meantime, they're sort of fighting for survival. You know the. The German parent company is going through insolvency. The U.S. Uh, headquarters had to issue a warn notice, which basically says possibility of impending layoffs to, I think, 400 employees in Oregon. So they're, they're fighting for survival while they're fighting this legal battle. So you got to help me understand one thing. I've heard a, a number of people say that this will be worse for utility-skilled developers than residential installers. I understand that there's a lot more price sensitivity when you're, you know, trying to shave off a tenth of a penny and you're starting to compete for 4 cent contracts in utility scale solar, but like the margins are pretty damn thin in residential solar too, so I don't understand why the price sensitivity is that much greater in utility scale solar. Am I interpreting that wrong or No, I think you're right. I mean the, you know, it remains to be seen. We'll find out how it actually impacts these markets. But I think the going wisdom, which which has some inherent logic to it, is that it would have a bigger impact on utility-scale solar than it would on distributed solar for a couple of reasons. One is is something that you mentioned, which is that you know a lot of the growth in utility-scale solar right now is coming purely from the fact that utility-scale solar has just become cost competitive. And so utilities are including it in their integrated resource planning outside of mandates. They're doing bilateral contracts. They're issuing technology-agnostic RFPs that solar is winning just because solar is the cheapest 
resource today. So if you increase the price on solar, it gets a little bit harder to make solar the cheapest resource. You might lose some of that market. But more importantly, you could just think about the math this way. So you know, a utility-scale solar project might get installed sort of turnkey today for about a dollar a watt. A residential solar project right now is getting installed for $3 a watt plus. So if module prices in the U.S. increased by $0.40 cents a watt, so say they go from $0.38 to $0.78, cents, that $0.40 cents a watt is a 40% increase on the cost of utility-scale solar, where it's only like a, what is it, a, you know, a third of that on residential solar. So just in proportional terms, the economic impact is a lot bigger on the bigger projects. Do you lose a bunch of states, though, in residential? Like, even though the impact is is smaller, clearly that takes a lot of states off the table. Yeah, I mean, we've been modeling this out right now. Uh, Corey Honeyman on my team is, is working on a piece right now that's looking at this state by state and trying to figure out under various sort of pricing scenarios what states would remain in and out of the money. And the short version is, yes, you would lose some states in terms of economic viability for residential solar if you increased prices even to 78 cents a watt, let alone a dollar eighteen a watt. So the impact would be felt certainly across the entire market. We try to be rational and level-headed on this podcast, but man, this feels like a doomsday scenario. I mean, it feels really bad. You know, the solar market wouldn't disappear, right? So if you increased module prices to 78 cents a watt and everything else were held equal, the cost of a total solar installation today would be back where the cost of a total solar installation was a couple of years ago, 2015-ish pricing. Module pricing would be back in 2012 levels, but because the cost of everything else has fallen since then, you'd end up in total back around 2015 or so. The market in 2015 was a lot smaller than it is today, and in fact, there was more state-level support and subsidies and things like that that you don't have today. So it would be bad for the market uh, in terms of growth. But there was a market in 2015, and there would be a market in 2018. It would just be a lot smaller than it is today. So it depends on your definition of doomsday. The wild card here, what happens to Tesla and its supposedly coming solar roof? You've got a company that's manufacturing the entire product in the U.S. It plans to manufacture the entire thing in Buffalo. Eventually, it'll scale up at Fremont and then, and then move to Buffalo. Um, this could all of a sudden make an expensive product look a lot less expensive. Do you think that this will have any benefit to a Tesla solar city over the next couple of years, assuming we see, you know, tariff levels or minimum prices that, that mirror what Suniva wants? It's hard to say what it would be like. Obviously you'd think that Tesla would benefit from this, just like first solar. And, you know, if they're not subject to the tariffs, uh, in their case, because they're manufacturing in the U.S., they obviously would have more of an advantage then. That said, now that we've got pricing details on the solar roof, it's a complicated value proposition that's not entirely based on sort of competitiveness with rooftop solar. Uh, it's based more on competitiveness with a roof replacement plus solar. And so it might get a little bit better relatively speaking, but my guess is that because they're not trying to sort of compete apples to apples exactly, that it wouldn't be felt as clearly as it would be felt for somebody like First Solar or even Solar World, who's 
just selling an apples to apples product within the same market. I think we should also be clear about the impact, assuming we get the kind of remedies that Suniva is asking for. We have a couple gigawatts of production capacity here in the U.S. Assuming foreign manufacturers wanted to come in and set up shop, it would take years to scale up manufacturing capacity to sort of meet the demand for solar we've seen over the last few years. So this is not an overnight thing where all of a sudden uh, we just we just meet demand for solar with production capacity that's already underway. This will take years to balance out. Yeah, I think, look, if you had a wave of foreign manufacturers deciding immediately upon the imposition of tariffs that they were going to set up facilities in the U.S., and I'll tell you in a minute why I don't think that's totally realistic, they could set up reasonably quickly. Module assembly is is pretty fast. Cell manufacturing, I think, takes a little bit longer. I don't. I wouldn't necessarily say it's going to take years. So a, a year, maybe. Maybe a year. Yeah, and you'd have a lot of turmoil in the market in between now and then. Now, here's why that probably wouldn't happen. Even though the U.S. solar market has tons of potential, and every global solar manufacturer, you know, needs the U.S. market. Uh, ultimately. So they, it's, you know, high on their list along with China and Japan and India as like, these are the big solar markets. They want to play here and they would probably want to do anything that they need to in order to play. At, like we said at the beginning, they're struggling just like everybody else. They don't have a ton of additional capital that they can deploy into more manufacturing. Keep in mind, this is a global oversupply that we're in right now. The last thing that they want to be doing is adding more capacity to the mix. They're trying to focus on rationalizing their existing capacity at the moment. So it's a bad time for them to talk about adding more manufacturing, finding you know getting access to capital to do so. So my guess is that you wouldn't see an immediate wave. Maybe it would happen eventually, but certainly the solar market for for at least a couple of years in the U.S. would have sort of dramatic undersupply of domestic manufacturing and thus likely higher prices because you'd still have to import some stuff. Yeah, so this this will go a little quiet for a while. We'll try to give updates if there's any big news. I know Shale is going to sit here obsessing over it. I've seen he's been scrawling on the walls all Section 201 and no play makes Shale a dull boy. That's why I have to move to San Francisco. My, <laughs> my walls are full. Man. Yeah, he's got nothing else to write on. But uh, we will keep you updated. This is truly a monumental news story for the industry. And if there are any big updates, you'll you'll surely hear about them here. Shale, safe travels to San Francisco. We'll uh, catch you next time from across the country. Thanks, man. See you next time. With Shale Khan, I'm Stephen Lacey. This is The Interchange, conversations on the global energy transformation from Greentech Media.